0: just for a moment, consider this fact. There have been more mass shootings this year than there have been days. Over 200 so far, according to the Gun Violence Archive. There have been shootings at an affordable housing complex in Chicago, in the waiting room of a doctor's office in Atlanta, and at a mall just north of Dallas. That mall shooting, it felt particularly grim because of how quickly gruesome pictures of the victims and the gunmen made rounds on social media. 8 people were killed. Their bodies left in a pile outside an H&M. There's never a sensical motive for a crime like this. But that didn't stop digital scavengers from looking. The shooter it turned out had left behind a diary online. In it he was frank about his white supremacist beliefs. He had a swastika tattoo on his chest. He was also Latino. Or as he put it online, Hispanic, whether I like it or not. Those words, Tanya Hernandez could not stop thinking about them. And I thought, hmm, what an interesting bird's eye view into the path that he took. Tanya wrote a book called Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias and the Struggle for Equality. I think you wanted to be
1: a full-fledged member of the club of white supremacy, but you all don't necessarily immediately accept me, so let me continue to, you know, blather on about all the ways in
0: which I really am a member of this club. To Tanya, it wasn't news that a Latino man could embrace racism like this. And it was a little disorienting that it surprised so many other people. Elon Musk, for example, looked at the shooter's digital footprint, reams of photos and memes posted to a Russian social media site, and he could hardly believe it, tweeting out, it must be a psyop." Part of the disbelief was like, well,
1: these two things are completely in opposite, Hispanic identity and white supremacy. You know, how can these two things mix their, their oil and vinegar? Uh, and what that completely overlooks is that we have white people in Latin America and the Spanish speaking Caribbean. Right? Meaning that Latino Hispanic is a ethnicity. It is not a race. So the complexity and the diversity, the racial diversity within Latino populations is something that we don't very really spend much attention to, even during Hispanic Heritage Month, for goodness sakes.
0: Yeah, you sound a little frustrated by it. Like, I have to tell you this again.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry that you are the victim. <laughs> Of my frustration with how many times I have to say this. The very first step to understanding that Hispanics could be imbibing at the fountain, you know, that it's white supremacy, is an understanding that we already have racial identities within us.
0: Today on the show, why a Latino shooter's white supremacist rage is really no surprise at all. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. for the ones who get it done. I want to go over just a little bit of what was found in the Allen Texas shooter's social media accounts cuz it is so extensive and shocking. Like on this Russian social media site he seems to have had, his avatar was a smiley face that looked like Hitler, like had a little mustache, and he routinely posted racist memes. Like one of them that stood out to me was this This one that joked that Latino children have to decide whether they want to act black or become white supremacists. And then he commented, I think I'll take my chances with the white supremacists, which is just like so abhorrent. Like in every way, (laughs) every part of that is upsetting. I wonder if that post stood out to you, too. Well, you know what?
1: The way in which I immediately understood that was acknowledging and coming to a reckoning with how the world, let alone the United States, treats you as an other. Hispanic ethnicity is not greeted the same way, for instance, as French ethnicity. There are ways in which the society makes a to-do about Hispanic background that means that you are not entirely welcome. So this was a choice he felt was forced on him. I believe that's a choice he felt was forced on him. Now, it's a very odd way to view coming to an understanding of, okay, this is how others view me. It's sort of like either I have to live with the realization that I'm not viewed just as a human being, that I'm viewed through this filter, right, of my ethnic background, or I can join the club in which we get to be on top.
0: Yeah. I want to expand the scope a little bit because this shooter, his beliefs seem to have been so extreme, you know, having a swastika tattoo is like, it's just way on one end of the spectrum. But part of what's interesting about your work is that you show the way that these ideas about race are threaded throughout Latino culture. You also talk about how you see this very particularly as an Afro-Latino woman who can... Kind of present in a number of different ways in a number of different situations. So I wonder if we could look at how Latinos who are not, you know, presenting in this very extreme way, are still carrying some of the same ideas that you know are informing someone like this shooter. I'm glad you brought that up because
1: what we can sometimes get a little too caught up in is thinking about these individuals or these shooters as aberrational. Yeah. And what that doesn't readily appreciate is how we do have individuals who are carrying many of these same racialized attitudes, denying access to jobs, to a rental apartment or the sale of a home entry into a restaurant hotel or other public accommodation, uh, sidelining children based on their racial identity, and as law enforcement officers, really tracking some of this white supremacist violence. So why do I bring up all those categories? Those are all the spaces in which in my research, I have seen accounts, stories from people in court records um, and through interviews of Latinos and other people. African-Americans, West Indians, meaning the entire African diaspora that is present in the United States, how these individuals have been victimized uh, by the anti-Black bias and really white supremacist thinking uh, of many Latinos.
0: One of the like most interesting and simplest examples you've given to me is about how Latinos identify on the census, which really surprised me. Can you talk about that a little bit? What we have in the census since 1980, we've been
1: able to check a box that says Hispanic, yes or no. So that allows people to express their ethnicity. And then there's the race question. And there are Latinos who acknowledge their whiteness. And so they check the white box. Then there are Latinos who may look light but they don't feel white, meaning they think white means being someone who believes in white superiority. There is a discomfort, right? So about 35% of Latinos on any given decennial census either won't answer the race question, or they will go to this uh, little slot that says some other race, and they'll Hmm. check that box. And then in that box, they will typically put their national origin. I'm really from Venezuela. I'm really from Uruguay. <laughs> you know, and So they put that there.
0: The status update is it's complicated.
1: <laughs> exactly. Th- though the Census Bureau says, oh, that's because they don't understand U.S. racial categories. I said, oh, yeah, go back to Latin America and the Caribbean, where we do have racial categories on those census forms. And those people have no problem checking a race box. Meaning it's not about not understanding racial binaries. It's about the ways in which they're also reacting to how society views their Hispanic origin as problematic.
0: Right. Because race is really a measurement of how other people see you in some ways. Exactly. And so there's this discomfort. Yeah. I wonder, like, you've talked about how you can code switch back and forth between different identities when you or your family members have been looking at that census form, I wonder if you've ever, if you've switched back and forth about, like, how do you identify racially and how do you think about
1: that? Well, within my family, there is variation. My mother is, as we like to say in the Black community, unambiguously Black. <laughs> so me, hmm. you're not, not confused when you look at her <laughs> that she <G is>, has <laughs> Black ancestry. Let's put it that way, right? And proud of it. And so my mother was always very clear about checking the Black box, right? My grandmother, in contrast, uh, who also had African ancestry up there in the family tree, but it wasn't as apparent in her face, right? She's sort of lighter skinned and as Latinos would say, blessed, blessed with a more straight hair. She hated the census form. Huh. And, and the reason why I, I'm, like, I'm so intimately aware of her, her struggles with it is because I was the granddaughter doing the translating of the documents. You know, once the the uh, rest of the adults were off, you know, working or whatever. You know, who's with Abuelita? That's me, the granddaughter. I'm my, with my grandmother. And so I'm helping translate v- these various forms and check the boxes. I'm like, okay, we did Hispanic origin. Now time for race.
0: Should I, uh, what should I do? You want to put it in black? She's
1: like, no. No, no, no.
0: <sighs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes. And then you have to be the marking person. Like, that must have been so strange for you. Oh, we fought about it. It was ridiculous. But that's
1: all tied together, right? It's all tied together uh, with these, the rejection of blackness and the esteem of whiteness. We live in a society where we have all kinds of racialized structures and belief systems, um, and so getting... Pegged with a particular label, depending on if if you're doing it in access to a job, trying to apply for a mortgage. These are spaces in which we have seen racialized exclusion. And so it's not illogical that people would greet self-identification on a census form uh, as a very fraught space because it brings to light all these various
0: currents. It's a it's a great story about your. Did you ever like just mark the one you wanted to mark? I think you clearly wanted to mark black identity and be like, "This is the truth."
1: I, I think there may have been. Um, you know, I, I don't want any fraudulent. Uh. Uh fraud inspectors out there in the federal government to uh, 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 misunderstand my words. But, you know, there may have been some uh, fact-checking on my part with regards to the census form or responses that she included.
0: (laughs) After the break, how Latin America's deep history with slavery mirrors our own. When Tanya Hernandez looks at racist ideas and how they live and breathe in her own community, the Latino community, she spends a lot of time thinking about history. Just like the U.S., she says many Latin American countries were deeply involved with the slave trade. In fact, some were more involved. Understanding that, she says, it helps contextualize the way Latino gunmen seem to identify so strongly as a white supremacist. Part of the racial illiteracy
1: that we unfortunately have in the United States, really in so many other uh, locations as well, is this ignorance about the global phenomena that was the African slave trade and how much of a sort of smaller part the United States had in it. So first, just as far as percentages and duration, Brazil's the very last place to abolish slavery in 1888. Those extra decades matter, right? The other thing that matters here as far as percentages are concerned is that historians estimate that what we now call the United States only received about 3.5% of the African slave trade, as compared to 90% that went to Latin America and the Caribbean as a whole. Now, I'm not trying to play hierarchy of oppression here, um, but I'm simply wanting to uh, situate the ways in which there's a relevance to talking about legacy of slavery And the racialized logics that sustained it and then continued after abolition in order to maintain a status of white supremacy continuing through today, you still have ways of racialized thinking. All these racialized tropes that we have in the United States about black people, we have the same ones in Latin America and the Caribbean about black people.
0: Professor Hernandez's research points to an unlikely inflection point in U.S. history as an example of how this racial illiteracy can end up baked into the national mindset. In the 1960s, the Chicano civil rights movement saw Latinos, mainly Mexican Americans, organizing for equal treatment. Inspired by the black civil rights struggle that was happening at the same time, these activists called attention to injustices experienced by farm laborers. They organized walkouts in East LA's underperforming schools.
1: We have the lowest reading rate in East L.A., in the, in the East Side schools. We have graduates that graduate from high school, the graduate, that are in the 12th grade, that graduate and are out to face the world and can only read an 8th and a ninth grade reading level. And we believe this is a crisis.
0: But Hernandez says this movement, it had the unintended effect of pushing any sort of intersectionality to the background. I would say that it became
1: more obscured in the following way, with the Chicano movement in the 1960s, you have young people, particularly on the West Coast, who are rejecting the idea of their forefathers that tried to assimilate into the United States, that they are not white Mexicans, that they are a brown race. And this becomes along with a sort of this romanticized vision of Aztec culture. And so within that, though, what is obscured is... The African ancestry in Mexico, the Afro-Mexicans walking around the United States at that time, let alone who's still in Mexico itself.
0: Why wouldn't it be inclusive of Afro-Latinos to think about this discrimination as racialized?
1: Well, what is fascinating here is that it was a movement that was trying to both capitalize on the civil rights movement of African-Americans in the 1960s, but never be self-reflective about the anti-black bias that already existed within Latino communities.
0: So it didn't want to reflect on the ways the Latino community was holding certain members of its own group down. It just wanted to look at the white community around it? The white community
1: and also the black community is being distinctive, meaning we're not that. Right? We're not black. We're all brown. What the rhetoric, with the language of we are a brown race did was flatten the racial distinctions within Mexican-American societies. The problem, though, if they don't Simultaneously pay attention to what are intersectional identities, meaning that some of us are both Mexican and Black, right? That some of us are both Mexican and Spanish, meaning more European ancestry, and that it's visible, and that that matters. We can, you know, try to lift up the ways in which we are sort of similarly affected by anti Latino bias, but we shouldn't then. Make ourselves colorblind, right, uh, to the ways in which there are distinctions within our community. The, the human rights objective should be about lifting us all up, regardless of what it is that is keeping us down, even if it's members of our own community.
0: Yeah, I think part of what's so interesting about your scholarship is that it reveals how all of us might be thinking of diversity and tolerance in the wrong way. Not all of us, but many of us. Like, I think there's this assumption that if societies are mixed. They're also inclusive, like just we just need to get people together. And like, that's the solution. Do you think we've just been understanding this all wrong? Well, I mean, certainly getting people in the room is the first step. right? So
1: I don't think that that was um, a mistake. The rose colored glasses was to think that demography alone would enact democracy. The idea that we're all racially mixed or that we have um, racially mixed spaces doesn't look at how there are structural barriers that create racially segmented labor markets, residential spaces, spaces of entertainment and recreation. You don't need Jim Crow. <laughs> you don't need official state mandated segregation. Yeah, you know, white only car, black only car. To live in a world in which there are racial understandings about who should be where and what's
0: their proper place. Because the mixed goes both ways. Like you look at the shooter in Allen, Texas. He was he was Hispanic and white supremacist, you know? Like it's <laughs> you can be mixed in every way. Most certainly I mean, and this
1: is why in the book, Racial Innocence, while my focus is on these case law examples and lifting up people's stories, part of the most heart-wrenching aspect of the book were the family memoirs. Time and time again, what the memoirs show is that the darkest member of the family is led and meant to understand the inferiority of their skin shade, meaning that it's not only not good looking, they're not beautiful, but also that they're not as capable or intellectual from the very people that love them. Yeah. That you can have racialized attitudes even within spaces of people who love you if they're not readily challenged and made visible for what they are.
0: That must make talking about your book really emotional when you go out into the community and and talk about the work you've done. Well, you know, that has been
1: part of the fascinating aspect of being on a kind of a book tour. (laughs) Uh, What? took me sort of by surprise and it's moving every time it happens is that the question and answer sessions often become almost like therapy sessions. Hmm. What they want is to share with me and the audience how something particularly made them feel seen and understood. They're trembling with tears when they share their own personal stories. And I have to say, as an author, that is so gratifying.
0: Tanya, I'm really grateful for your time and your scholarship. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Tanya Hernandez is a professor of law at Fordham University. She's also the author of Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias, and the Struggle for Equality. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out all about it. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.